fatherhood. It's how we keep our tribes and families strong. You've landed in the right place if you're ready for dad jokes, tips, and tricks on fun parenting. Also with interviews with some of the coolest dad entrepreneurs we could track down and have them share their strategies to tackling it all in business and life on The Dad Next Door. And now, your host, Mr. Dad Jokes himself, <laughs> Jason Centeno. How do you say your last name? Because I probably messed it up a hundred times saying it in my head. Prokopchuk. Not a literal meaning, but I mean, it's from Eastern Europe, so it's more of a, you know, NHL last name. Not like a curse word or anything cool? No. Like a, uh, you. And then, <laughs> no, unfortunately should, not. should look into that. There might be there might be something there. We're both dad entrepreneurs, obviously, and we met on Clubhouse at one of the dad rooms. And you told me about your journey with, well, entrepreneurship, some of it, but just the 25 children that have gone through your house and, and how big your heart is. And that really kind of stunned me. So before we get into the, the children part of it, how did you become an entrepreneur? So I'm a uh, first generation immigrant from Ukraine, came over to the U.S. in 1990. Ukraine was still in the Soviet Union uh, with six other family members to a two bedroom apartment. Went to school here. I learned a language. Obviously, it was easy because I was younger. So I learned a language and not had an accent. Thought I was going to go into criminal justice. And uh, last semester of senior year in uh, Rutgers University, where I went, I interned with the Secret Service on the counterfeit currency squad, held a top secret federal clearance, thought I was going to go that route. And then basically, when I graduated, the recession hit. So state, local, federal agencies froze hiring. So I was looking for a job for months and months, kind of got down and depressed. Only thing really kind of kept me sane was going to the gym and kind of like dealing with that. That was like my place. And then I uh, met someone and they said, you know, come out to my car. I want to give you something. Maybe, you know, it'll help. Obviously, that conversation could have went a lot of ways. And uh, I said, why not? And I went out and they uh, opened their trunk and handed me a packet about search engine optimization. This was 2008, 2009, and basically said, you know, read this, uh, go online, read up for, you know, a few weeks, and then you can start doing that for my business. So I kind of saw I had nothing to lose and kind of jumped into it and then got a lot of opportunities at a lot of agencies, managed teams at this point, you know, with my uh, business and other agencies have worked on over uh, 600 accounts clients uh, ranging different verticals. I've worked with a bunch of Fortune 500 clients in 2012, decided to, you know, found my uh, own agency, which obviously was interesting and have kind of been uh, running and uh, living in the world of digital marketing ever since. Everything marketing online, pretty much everything that has to do with that, running Facebook ads, probably YouTube ads, and Google ads, and optimizing websites and funnels and that glorious puzzle <laughs> that we all have to deal with. Are you like in, in a specific niche that you kind of like cornered or is it kind of just a little bit of everything? So in terms of kind of discipline, I learned search engine optimization, which obviously is great because it's still applicable and relevant. But in 2009, I saw the ecosystem of the internet changing. So social media was in its infancy. Other things were coming up in terms of how you're able to reach your target audience online. And I didn't want to pigeonhole myself. So I started learning and implementing, you know, organic social, paid social, paid search, and really like running the gambit. So the foundation is uh, search engine optimization, but it's branched out to, you know, 
all inclusive. I first really started uh, in a law, so I I have had a lot of small, medium, large size law firms, but I've had a lot of experience in other agencies too that were like specific, let's say, to pharma and life sciences. So working with like Purdue Pharma, uh, Beringer Ingelheim, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, companies like that on large, you know, accounts where you know a specific drug we're marketing either direct to consumer or to the healthcare professional where it's you know a couple hundred million sometimes a couple billion in earnings for that specific drug and obviously there's limitations there because it's a controlled industry uh companies like kpmg worked with uh, people like celebrity chef robert irvine launching some fitness products so a lot of stuff a lot of industries and you know taking something from each industry and and making it work in other industries as well. All right, you're gonna hate me for this one, but so have you ever been the author of one of these Cialis or Viagra sort of emails that come in <laughs> that they willy nilly go everywhere? Is that you, Roman? Don't lie to me now. <laughs> I have not. Uh, mainly, I've marketed uh, over the counter products. Uh, some some black label, meaning they're they need a prescription and have a warning of you know possible severe injury or death. Obviously, there's warning labels on over the counter stuff, but uh, you know some of the regu- uh, regulated things that need a prescription as well. Yeah, I imagine that's kind of difficult. They're they're definitely not romantic in their marketing. You can't get too creative with them. I mean, how more how much more creative can you get than side effects includes vomiting, sneezing, farting, da, 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 da. and you're like the guy's on a horse and he's uh, swimming and all that. And it's just like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, there's other limitations too. So each piece of content, each each uh, you know ad, each social media post has to go for every uh, pharmaceutical and life sciences company through a uh, legal, uh, medical, and regulatory board. So they have to basically, you submit it through this platform and there's a monthly review where they review, you know, all the companies and agencies and, you know, internal assets that they work with. And for something like even I've had where the post was like, a social media post, it was like happy, uh, veterans day and apparently like it's not like remembering the veterans so there was a veteran on the actual like review board so they said i don't like this verbiage and if you don't like one thing they send the whole project back for you to make the change and then resubmit it through this really tenuous process and the, and the system itself is very clunky to submit it you have to have like a, a representative on the uh, side of that company and all this. You have to have like a, a serial tracking number. And it's just like very, a very long process often to get very quick. Yes or no. And you yourself have to deal with all that as the agency or is there somebody that's doing that? I don't know, that handshake between creative and legal and all them, because I can't imagine that. I wouldn't want to pull my hair out by like one, like the end of the day with some of that stuff. I mean, just reading contracts and real estate alone is mind numbing. I can imagine what it's like when you're dealing with medical stuff and just like getting caught up over one word that that sounds horrendous. <laughs> I've done it personally. I've There's been people assigned to it when I've held other roles, like account director roles, I would have to go to that uh, pharma or life science company actual office and sit in and defend it if there was a lot of issues where the people weren't understanding where that creative or that strategy was coming from so sometimes you physically would have to go on site to you know sometimes the u.s headquarters to sit in on this meeting just so like it wouldn't be sent back and you can work it out uh, on site and you would have this like 
brand champion type person that advocate on your behalf too. It's kind of like, it's actually kind of like a courtroom, which is funny to, well, not that funny because it's a lot, a lot of work. You're not there. They can explain what you mean and things of that nature. You said you were um, immigrants. Did entrepreneurship run in your family? Like, I mean, father's uncle's grandfather like was that just something that in your blood or are you kind of the first guy my dad when he came here he opened up like a dry cleaning and like a shoe repair shop then he started a construction company so he was doing that uh, my grandfather was already retired in uh, ukraine before we came over and then obviously you know there's bills and things of that nature so he was like you know in his 50s mid 50s when we came over and he literally went to do roofing. And for another 20 years, he would do roofing. And roofing is not an easy job, especially in New Jersey, in hot summers and, you know, with falls that are cold as well. Obviously, winter, usually you don't do roofing. But people that were coming over to, you know, make a few bucks from Eastern Europe, some guys in like their 20s and said, nah, I'm not doing this. This is crazy. And he did it for, for 20 years. So. so before I go deep into the serious subject of family, I'm going to shake this bad boy up a little bit with these i, I like to ask five kind of out of nowhere questions so bear with me it kind of like gets your juices flowing but i like them because they, they start some interesting conversations so you ready for these five rapid fire questions and yep. no particular order okay if you could paint anything what would you paint just like a nature scape i actually took uh intro to art as an elective first semester of of college and I was a horrible like painter drawer and actually like putting in some work. I drew some half decent stuff like, you know, farmscapes and different nature stuff, but I haven't done it since then. So I think doing that would actually be like relaxing and therapeutic. What celebrity annoys you the most? I don't like, I literally stopped watching TV. Honestly, I don't even know because I have so much stuff on my plate that anything I watch isn't even actor actress it's like cartoons <laughs> what's the most interesting thing you have in your wallet like a fraternal order of uh police like a gold card like a family card that gets me out of some binds i think that's my well i wouldn't say get out of jail free card but it's gotten me out out of state for different like speech like in north carolina they like try to get you so one town to another it goes from like 40 to 25 and they like sit on that border so it's gotten me out of you know out of state and in-state stuff yeah, the locals are one thing and the stadies are another. And the stadies don't care about them cards a lot of times. Um, yeah, as a, as a firefighter, I used to enjoy the benefits of the sticker and, you know, that. But you still get them guys out there that could give a crap about any of that. So, you know, but it's still better than nothing. I get you on that. So what's the meanest thing you've ever said to anybody? I mean, probably like I hope you die or something like that. I mean, it's pretty harsh. Did you say it in another language or in English? Because, you know, that makes a difference too. <laughs> I said it in English, but I think if I said it in like Ukrainian, it, it would be more aggressive. So yeah, I probably sound more like yeah. If you could get a yacht, what would you call it? Or maybe you had one. I do not. <laughs> SS Minnow. That's the first thing that comes to my mind because it's like you know, if it's this huge thing and you're talking about this little fish, it's just irony. Would you be the skipper or Gilligan on that particular boat? I would say skipper. More skipper. Got it. I like the, uh, that was an interesting show. Probably half the people watching this don't like what the hell are you what, the, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> that was on when I came to America, Gilligan's Island. Uh, what is that? The the show with the uh, Fonzie, uh, Happy Days and stuff like that. Yeah, Wonder Years. All that was on. What does your daily routine look like for everything you do? I mean, I wake up 
and then I have to get all the kids ready. Currently, we have, well, we had four up until two days ago, but we have three foster kids. I have to get them to daycare, which luckily is only about five minutes away. So in case something happens. And then when I get back, uh, if there's anything I need to help out around the house, you know, with my wife or anything, or with the current baby we have um, that's six months old, then I have to take my two dogs out. Then I make a cup of coffee. Then I take like five minutes for myself to like get grounded a little bit, just some quiet time or just like listen to something inspirational, inspirational, like song, read a quote, something that kind of keeps me going for the day. And I think then open up and, you know, check my emails. I think I have what one, two, three, four, I have like six email accounts at this point. So I got to, check those or they get funneled into one and then figure out, make a checklist for the day. I think that's important. So I wouldn't go past like 10 things you have to do. Obviously, if you have a project management system for your business, that's, you know, those kind of things, but maybe you have stuff that falls out of it uh, outside of the scope of that. So having about 10 things doesn't go too crazy, but when you jot those 10 things down, you can itemize them by like order of importance. So then that helps you if you can delegate some of those things on that list out or what you truly need to actually focus on for the day. So I find that super helpful. And um, usually my day doesn't end till like two in the morning when I have like quiet time to, you know, test things, do some strategy um, and other things. But yeah, it's usually a long day. You have a team then? I mean, you're not doing this by yourself. You got the BAs or just other people in other places doing things for you? Yeah, remotely, but I mean, in terms of myself, more so being uh, tactical planning, strategy, and kind of seeing, you know, pieces being moved and reviewing and approving things kind of before they go out and things of that nature as well. So inside of that busy schedule, you got, and you mentioned it, but I guess I want, I want you to talk about really if you have at any given time, two to four, five, what's the most foster children you had under your roof at the same time? Six. Six. And about how long did that last, roughly? A few days, then that, that dropped down to like three or four. Okay, so um, like an emergency kind of placement? There. Yeah, the, the most we've had was five for like a few few weeks. Usually it's two or three in terms of long-term. And sometimes, like you said, in between that, it's called respite care. Sometimes other foster parents need help or have a health uh, emergency, or they can't find a home and they're looking to approve a family member or guardian to, to get the children that were uh, removed and they need a few days. So we kind of help out in that capacity as well. So, so you guys do that too. You open your home to like, say if the parents like need to like, uh, go on a, uh, a trip or something and the kids are not allowed to go out of state or anything like that. You're there for that, you know, 48, possibly 48, you know, two days to four days kind of period. Yeah. It's called respite care. Like you, you help other uh, foster families, but that doesn't quite work out all the time. We had a respite that was supposed to be 10 days. It turned into eight months. So there's that. I'm glad you terminology because i kind of like to educate people all the flavors that there is of this whole system with foster foster to adopt adoption respite care um resource parents all kinds of things you can be in between and it really just depends on your capacity to take care of people and you know the room in your house and like if you're already there and you're like good with it then yeah i don't mean i don't know how big your house is but if you're taking care of that many, you've got to have at least four or five bedrooms going on and some space because otherwise you're going crazy. 
I mean, I know. So <laughs> that's kind of why I asked you what your what your kind of your routine is to fit all that in. So going from your busy schedule to an occasional madhouse, but normally a lot of traffic going on. What does your best dad life look like with these wards that you now have? I mean, I think the best thing that like right off the bat that my wife and I did, and I would recommend to anybody, you know, becoming a new foster uh, parent or has been struggling if they have one child or multiple children is get them on a schedule or a routine because that gives them normalcy in terms of things that they haven't had in their life. Probably things like, you know, they may have not had a bedtime. They were going to bed maybe, you know, all times in the morning. They didn't know when their next meal was. They were uh, medically neglected. So missing shots, not going to the doctor, maybe surgeries they needed that they never gotten, have seen abuse, have been abused. So it's one of those things where like getting a child, figuring out, obviously sometimes you get spotty information. So stuff isn't really shared with, you know, foster parents. So you have to kind of be a therapist, psychologist, counselor all at once and figure that out quick. You know, what triggers the children? you know, what soothes the children, how you can be the best kind of resource or help for them. And then once you know that, you can basically kind of develop their schedule. And, you know, you have to treat each child differently because each child's coming from a different situation. Indeed, indeed. It's always an experiment. And like I tell people, um, when we move, it's like moving an army. I mean, it's not quick. Like you say, oh, you know, this time and this machine, it's like the military, the bigger the operation, it's just like the more moving parts, the longer it takes to go. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of yelling and moving and, you know, just, you know, <laughs> drill sergeant. And it's a system. You developed your own. But like you said, it's difficult, especially when there's like the ones that have been there longer and then the new ones and like the who's used to what and how they're getting along. And then there's the dynamic of who's older. And even though there's somebody that was younger, what might have been there longer. So they boss around somebody older that was probably not there as long because they got they established their territory. And there's just all this kind of weird not nor not not usual sort of situations you kind of got to adapt to and identify quickly or you know things could get very chaotic let's just say what's one question that you are tired of people asking you i would say like how do you do it or things like that or i know i can never do it like how do you do it because that's something if you i look back uh because we became we became licensed may 31st of 2018 first you know, first day right after June 1st, two children dropped off. It was like, figure it out. So at first, you know, if you asked me three years ago, would you see yourself being a foster parent down the line? I'd say probably not. And then if you say, mention the number, you know, in, in two and a half years, if you, you know, 25 kids have been through your home, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. So I think it's, uh, it's one of those things where people uh, say, I mean, it, it's definitely not hard. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's a lot of issues with the system, moving parts, kids may be getting reunified when they're not supposed to, uh, just a lot. But I feel like it's one of those things in personal life or business. Um, you, you have to kind of jump in the fire sometimes to really, you know, see growth. Yeah. Okay. So on the alternate side of that coin, what I, and I get that, that how do you do it? Because it's kind of like, you just like Nike, you just do it. Like there's no preparation for this. You don't know. You just, you just say yes, and then whatever comes, what you know, whatever comes comes, and you deal with it then. Because fearing something is that can never happen, or you know, dreading something like it's never as bad as you think it is. And it's hard to explain, but yeah, like it, it is one of those questions. Like you could do, anybody could do this if you put your heart to it. I guess you could say. 
what's one question that you wish people would ask you, but they never, never seem to do. How do you deal with the, uh, I guess the process. So like, it, it's hard because each child that leaves your home, you care about them, regardless if they were in your home for a day or a year, you know, some children, obviously, if they're there longer, you may develop, you know, stronger bonds, but all the kids that are here, you, you know, you worry about them. You want to see them safe, happy, kind of on the right path. You know, how do you feel after each child is, you know, le- uh, leaves or how do you kind of deal or cope with it? And I don't have a good answer because I feel like, you know, you're going to have that pain regardless and you keep doing it over and over again. So it's like more like, you know, a self, uh, limiting or like a self wounding thing, you know, it's coming, but you do it anyway. We had a couple of, I was talking about it today, actually with somebody else, a couple of almost, if I have to be the boogeyman or the the threat that makes a family get their, you know, their get their shit together for want of a better word, then I'm good with that. Even if like, I'm sad that we missed out on having those children, because at the end of the day, that's the right thing to do. Get, get them with, with their family because God knows I would never want that to happen to me and, and no matter what the circumstance. And I, I'd want to know that they were with family if they could be, but or at least with the, you know, taking care of the best they can. But, you know, the unknown of people you don't know is, is always kind of crazy. And I can imagine what, you know, what people would be going through their heads. I mean, I'm, I'm on both sides of it um, and it's very hard to to explain. But, yeah, I mean, that's 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 real, real stuff right there. So what would you say? As a dad, what's your dad's superpower? I would say just kind of being being present, honestly, because we've had some respites that have been the oldest child we've had is about 12 years. So he was with us for a week because uh, one of the uh, resource parents was having surgery, but they were older. So, you know, a 12 year old wants to like hang out, play video games and and, you know, go throw the ball around. So. I feel like a lot of the time it's just being present and I I can do that. Some things you think are more difficult in terms of like, I guess what kids appreciate, but simply like walk by their room or they're watching TV, sit down for five, 10 minutes. And a lot of the time they'll like appreciate that for the, uh, like um, for the whole day. So I think having the self-awareness to just, I guess, put in undevoted time for each child the way he needs it. And you're able to, well, you, you obviously are intentional and you put work down to go do that. And that's just, I guess, constant exercising that time to be present. I don't know if you got a reminder on your phone or something, especially, you know, depending on how many kids you got. But it's definitely difficult, and especially, um, you know, sometimes the boys want to go do boy stuff and the girls want to do girl stuff. And it's like you can't do both at the same time because one person or the other is going to be complaining. So you got to break it up. You take them and you take, you know, you take the girls, I'll take the boys and then or vice versa. You take the boys, I'll take the girls. That teamwork is definitely necessary in that. And then, yeah, I I can't say that I'm always present. Um, I have made way more conscious efforts, like I would say in the past year, just because um, I've noticed that about me and also when they see you doing the stuff like being in your phone too much or just kind of curving them, putting them off, they start to do it. And it, it it's such a slap in the face when it gets, you know, when you get to see what you're being like to them and you're just unaware of it. And then suddenly you're aware, like, oh, crap, that's how I'm being. So, yeah, that 
that's definitely a big one. I'm just trying, even just trying to improve it. If you're not that, you know, it, it all starts with that. And the, you know, with the older one or, or with the ones that are just in, in the house are like, are they like surprised by that? Like they're not used to it because they come from a place where maybe they weren't getting paid attention to at all. And you feel like maybe they, they appreciate it more than say someone who's been there longer. Um, maybe, I mean, like you said, girl, boy dynamic. So out of the 25 children we've had, uh, 21 were boys and four were girls. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of being out of the environment because like that, that child's like bi uh, biological situation, they had a lot of siblings. So I don't know if they had one-on-one -on -one time and like here, it was just one of those things where, you know, one of us will like go hang out with them. Like it took them to GameStop, bought them a few video games. Like every night it would sit and play video games, bought him a football, throw it around. So I think it's a lot of like one-on-one -on -one time that uh, they may have not been used to. And I feel like, well, when it was time to ready to go, he, you know, he was bawling because he wanted to stay. So, I mean, I think that one-on-one -on -one time is important. I think, you know, every child kind of yearns for it. And you let them beat you at basketball? No. Absolutely not. My wife would, would would think otherwise, but I'm one of those dudes like you have to earn it. So I'll, I'll beat you until basically you're old enough and skillful enough at that to, you know, pass the torch and beat me in that game. Until then, I'm going to I don't care if you're two years old. I'm going to reject it and do the Matumbo, you know, finger, <laughs> finger wave. It just made me laugh because I was trying to teach the kids tic-tac-toe you know oh you go to a restaurant everybody wants to play tic-tac-toe i mean i spank them i'm like life is rough <laughs> you gotta learn how to play the game <laughs> every once in a while i'll throw them a bone but like it's like nah man you gotta learn this thing because we live in an age where everybody's just given anything for participating and i'm like nah, you know you're just gonna be average or sub suboptimal at everything in your life you know when you can beat me then you've achieved something right so i don't know but yeah, I think that's the dad thing, though. That we just, we kind of, like, nah, you got to earn it, son or daughter. Just, you know, suck it up. <laughs> yeah, like the participant tr participation trophies I've gotten because I would get, like, the trophy, what I earned, whatever, like MVP or whatever. And then everybody on the team will get that participation trophy. So it's, like, one of those things where it's cool because you're in a sport, but I guess, like, in life, you know, if you're told in this incubator of either high school or college or growing up, like you're amazing, but you don't have the skill set or awareness to back it up. You don't have self-awareness what your your strengths are. And maybe you're like five foot two and you think you're going to be like an MVP in the NBA, which if you have the vertical and the shot, like you have Earl Boykin and uh, different other players that actually did it. But if it's that unrealistic where it's like literally you can't do it and people are telling you you're going to be the best player ever, that's not necessarily setting somebody up for success. Yeah, you're not one of those guys getting participation trophies anyway. You're, you're spanking people left and right. So people are going to see that that hard work and they're going to like, yeah, they're they're going to facilitate that versus like, uh, you know, like it, it's never going to serve you well getting handed something because you're just going to. Now what you have something you you have this in your hands and like you're in charge of something and like uh, unless you have that drive to win something or be the best at something, you know what's what's the point of working hard or being number one if everybody around you gets the same thing as you? It's like now you're just ruining everybody's desire to achieve, right? Like there there is satisfaction from that. From you know it doesn't have to be uh, um a pride moment. I mean, you can still be humble about it. Self-pride and self-accomplishment and just 
knowing that you can do something better than anybody else. If you go out there into the world and you just don't know where you're good at because nobody ever celebrated something you did and, and lined out why, like, why, why am I so good? Well, the point system, you scored more points than anybody. Okay, good. Well, why am I so good? You ran faster than anybody. You got, you got a trophy, got number one, this measure of things. Not everybody's going to be great at everything, but we're all great at something. And how are you ever going to learn your gifts if you can't even determine your weaknesses from your gifts because everybody's just getting the same thing. And now we got a mishmash, half-assed world of non-achievers and Lord knows what's going to happen from that. But, you know, it's up to guys like us to kind of keep that flame burning in, in some of these kids. I can imagine, or people, other people out there probably can imagine Sometimes these kids are going to come with hot, uh, be coming to your house and with a hot mess. They're going to be, you know, bad attitudes, cussing, all this kind of stuff. When you get angry, because that's going to happen with, with these children, how do you handle that? What do you do to, I mean, other than knowing that the consequences of touching a child, because that's the thing is there's punishment within the foster care system is definitely like handling a bomb. Like you got to, <laughs> there's a way more steps on trying to handle a bad situation because you're there to ha make the situation better. Yet here you are with this hot mess of feelings, emotions, words, sometimes physical, like how, what do you do to get, you know, get yourself right so that you can handle that the right way or the best way you can. Yeah. And so people know, like in terms of a foster parent, there's only certain ways you can discipline a child anyway. So there's no spanking or things of that nature. So you have to use uh, you know, rewards or, you know, taking things away in terms of like a toy or something or, you know, having them in timeout. So well, one figure figuring out what, why are they doing that action? Is it malicious? Are they lashing out? Is it a direct result of, you know, them being removed where they just want to like sabotage a good thing and, you know, just kind of like have you say, I can't handle it. And then being shipped off to the next home because subconsciously they don't feel like, you know, that they deserve love or situations like that. So really uh, figuring out why they're doing it in action. And then in that moment, seeing if they understand it, because a lot of the children we've had are like two, three, four, five years old. So sometimes it's a little harder for a two and three year old to comprehend what something is bad or why they did it. So really like in that moment, having them understand, well, now you have to sit there for five minutes and this is why you can't play with that toy because you can't act like that. You can't just throw something or hit somebody in the head or do this, that, or the other. So I think it's really situational, but like if I get angry about it, like just thinking like that they're not necessarily being malicious. I mean, sometimes they want to get under your skin and I, the way my house is laid out, like I have like a section of the house. So I have an office and then I have like a den, which is kind of like a man cave. So I'll like seclude myself and hang out with my dogs a little bit for a few minutes and then, you know, emerge a little calmer. So you have your own fortress of solitude there in the house. I mean, now, and, and it, I just asked that too, because, you know, you coming from, you know, Eastern Europe, I, I come from a Latino family. Um, listen, old school, the belt, the book, the, the shoe, the, you know, a chancleta. <laughs> yeah, la chancleta, la correa, um, and all, all, all this sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, I personally, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with some of it just because sometimes that's what's needed to just kind of drive a point home. But um, I'm not, I know there's better ways. I would say that with myself, rarely the pow pows come, but they come. 
I'm not going to lie. I know that when we were in the foster system, that was definitely something that you couldn't use. And, you know, we had to get creative with how we did that. And especially, you know, uh, one special needs and just trying to understand all that kind of stuff around that. And why is this person being like this? But um, I'm just curious, how did you get to that point? Was this a, you know, so you, you sit your self-development, like, you know, you, you go, you, you know, you know, you learn the meaning of things, you learn, uh, mindset and all these other things which help patients and then there's you know your faith if you have that and go to and you say am i being right am i being the best person i could be and patience and kindness and love and then there's technology and training like when they train you to be a foster parent there's like here's the rules and then there's the fear of breaking the rules so with you what would you say because you you come across as a very even kill patient person and that could just be because you're on a show right now. I don't know. Man. You could be you could be at uh, American Psycho <laughs> when you go to your, your den of solitude there and beat the walls up. But I don't know. But I'm just kidding. But you seem very even killed. Which of those things you think prepared you for this the most? Um, it could have been the Secret Service training and just dealing with um, chaos and, and, and that kind of stuff. I, I'm just curious of which one you think gave you the most help along these lines. Yeah, I guess I'm pretty low key, but I think uh, there's actually like a, I guess a 80s Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse, and then like when he trains the people, like be nice. If they like hit you in the face, be nice. Ask them to like, be nice, be nice. And then until when it's not, it's time to not be nice. Then you do what you have to do. So like I'm like super chill until like you you push me to a point where it's like. You know, I guess when keeping it real goes wrong on the Chappelle Show, basically. If you ever watched the Chappelle Show, yeah. but I mean, for the most part, like it's like where that anger kind of stems from, or like you come to terms with certain things. So like my childhood, you know, seeing domestic abuse, you know, my dad was abusive to my mom and stuff like that. And I had to kind of come to terms growing up with it. So it wouldn't eat me inside and, you know, him not being there in situations. So I think it's like, you can be angry or upset, but that level of anger or, um, you know, being upset has to match the situation when it's like, super not you know aligned with you know what you're angry about i think that's when it becomes a problem i like that uh patrick swayze analogy i think that is probably got to be one of the top answers and what men what, what men aspire to be overall like you know cool and calm and so you got to kick someone in the face and i mean you just <laughs> not a kid of of course but you know handle business so um, we talked about mindset really quickly. Like, are you in any masterminds or anything like that? I am not. I mean, I'm not opposed to masterminds, but since I got on Clubhouse, I feel like that's been a, you know, a escalation or like um, a networking opportunity where like a knowledge dump and depending on what the room is, obviously we met, you know, in a room and, you know, some rooms are better than others in terms of the vibe and the authenticity, but the people or like the tribe that I met there, I think it's hyper escalated certain things that I wanted to, to do because I found a lot of like-minded people, especially in the last year and a half with somewhat being isolated around the world because of the whole pandemic. It was nice to find like-minded people. And it's just like, all right, we, you know, we have the same goals. Let's go. Like, you know, let's motivate each other. You know, we, I'm on there every day. So if I see someone in a room or, you know, they DM me or we've taken conversation onto Zoom or, you know, a phone call, like I think it's just finding a tribe that kind of keeps you motivated in in whatever you want to do, because if you surround, even if it's in a di different industry, if like 
everyone's hungry and you don't have people that are like lazy or just saying they're going to do stuff, but it's like five years later and they're still at point A, you're more likely to do what you want to do with what your goals are as well. I will say um, Clubhouse is definitely um, is a, is a fire hose of information. What's cool is that you can direct the stream really quickly. Like I got, I got hooked on some of the NFT rooms now and starting to learn about that kind of stuff. And I was just like, wow. And I know that because it's so new, you know, there, there's probably nobody who could really advise you much on it unless they've done them. And like, this is like the next best thing. But um, for me, the value of masterminds has always been um, when you want to get direct questions quickly and concisely for your specific set of problems, then they excel. And sometimes in Clubhouse, you got to be there two, three hours and you might get some gems, but then you're dealing with everybody else's hot mess and, you know, inclusivity and this, that, the other thing. And I'm just like, oh, man, I got to go. So, yeah, it's one of these uh, you got to balance it out and figure out what you're really there for. But I feel you on that. So talk to me. Let's talk about um, talk to me about like, you know, if somebody was to contact you for this, this offer, this uh, visibility audit, what, what would what would that entail? Just kind of running your site through a few things and diagnosing if there's any major issues, either with the content, with your backlink profile, with how your site is made, and identifying certain things in terms of your brand that may be toxic out there, uh, certain things about you or who you are or your company that you may want to clean up. I want to add as much value as possible. So mainly helping people avoid bad situations and like snake oil salesmen, because somebody may not be able to work with me but I can point them in the right direction in terms of what to look out for so they don't get scammed in the future. Because I feel like digital marketing is one of those things that I feel like when I come across people that have done it and they're like, oh yeah, I spent $10,000 and the person took it and he did these things, you know, that, this, and the other. And I was like, well, that could have, you could have got that done for like $250. That's like absurd. And like, I got no value out of it and so on. And, and it sucks because like, that's your first experience in digital marketing. So I try to like be an advocate for at least you know, being as honest as possible. What what are like maybe like the top three things when you do one of these audits that like people always kind of always have this problem. It's very common and just like you're like duh, duh and you can fix it real quick, but they're just like unaware because they don't know technology or whatever. Well, I mean, sometimes duplicate content, a lot of people that don't necessarily have an online presence or don't know anything about even their website. I mean, some people don't have analytics on their site. So like showing them how to set up Google Analytics and search console and things of that nature and what to look out for in terms of kind of like quick on-site optimization tips in terms of optimizing your meta title, your description, your headings, best practices for internal linking, just kind of quick wins uh, for on-site to maybe give your site a boost depending on the health of the site overall. Nova Zora. Digital. I am sorry I beat that. Literal translation, it means new star in Ukrainian. Obviously, it's not written because Ukrainian is a Cyrillic, uh, has a Cyrillic alphabet, but like as we're saying phonetically, it means new star. How do you want to leave your mark on the world? Digital gangster by day, um, godfather of all these babies by night. Like, how, how do you want? How do you want to leave your mark? Yeah. So like in terms of kind of like my mindset, I think in my 20s, I was more like, you know, trying to get as as far as possible, chasing like big clients and uh, things of that nature. And then when I uh, turned 30, it was more about like a legacy, like a heart lit entrepreneur. So really adding as much value and just being of service. And when I made that mindset shift, a lot more opportunities came to me, a lot more clients when I started kind of 
giving without really uh, asking or, or expecting anything in return, especially doing a lot of pro bono stuff for nonprofits and things of that nature. But then they're like, all right, that you did an awesome job. Well, we know other companies and other people on our board that are in other companies that, you know, have significant marketing budgets. So I just feel like just, you know, being an authentic person and I think being authentic and being real in 2021 still goes a long way and you don't have to be fake phony or project like someone you want to be because on like if you go to social media everybody's projecting who they want to be or who they want to be in like five ten years not everyone but a lot of the time it's also a highlight reel of your life so i think just someone that's authentic that gave more than he you know and, and didn't expect anything from others and you know made his situation a better place and hopefully the children that were you know in my home were impacted in one way or another so when they get to some kind of you know pivotal fork in the road they can think back and maybe take the right path and then you know 10 20 30 years i can see them they're you know a senator or changing the world like you know in politics or uh advocacy or a nonprofit or you know whatever they're trying to do do you ever stay in touch with any of them or try to because i know there's kind of sometimes that's just not appropriate but you able to we try um we always try what's called you probably know like bridge the gap and be a resource when they're reunified but you know some biological parents their situation doesn't change and they may be removed again or they move or a lot of the time like i mean it's understandable sometimes when people do uh get their life together they want to forget that year you know what i mean they don't want to have ties to remind them of you know maybe why they lost their children or a part of their life so some people just say like oh yeah we're gonna be you know in contact you can talk and see the kids and they just kind of ghost you so but i mean seeing it from their perspective certain situations i understand like you know that mindset yeah it's because it's an embarrassment too that's the other thing like they don't want to kind of relive that part of their life but um yeah i mean always leaving that door open i think that's probably the biggest thing that any of us do when we take these kids in knowing that they at least have one person they can go back to if something should get even just to talk to. And I think that's important. I think, I think everybody in the world needs that, but just knowing that, that, you know, that you're there for them and making sure that they know that is, is awesome. I think that's a hell of a mark to leave on the world. Just that in someone's mind, you got a dad joke for me. Yeah. I'm going to use one of yours because it's funny because um, my wife's family is from Hawaii so I got the opportunity two years ago to go to a family reunion where I met a lot of them. Her grandfather lives on the North Shore of Oahu, which is a great place to live. I'm, I'm going to do the one that, you know, you suggested. Have do, at it, brother. All right. Do they allow loud laughing in Hawaii or just aloha? I got to use that. <laughs> they got to get that. They got to hear that over. They're like, wait a minute. Oh, aloha. Yeah. That's the kind that makes your teenager grown, but the older people are like, yeah, that was good. That was, that was nice and tight. Hey, all you entrepreneurs and dadpreneurs. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the YouTube channel for past episodes. Show me some love on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really want to be a guest on my show, no problem. Just email the dadnextdoortv at gmail.com and we'll take care of you. All the information you need is on the show notes of this episode. This is Jason, a.k.a. The Dad Next Door, signing out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.